if I'm in the kitchen and I'm trying to cook dinner, I'm thinking about, okay, I need to cut an onion. The onions are over there. The cutting board is over there. The knife is there. And I'm reading a recipe. And there's a lot of places I have to go. Yeah. A lot of head movement. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of memory stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was very challenging. And the worst thing they could do at that time would be to come into the kitchen and try to move around me. So I'm trying to make soup and I've got, I'm looking for the onion and I'm going over here to get the knife and I'm getting the chopping board. And they're like crossing behind me, getting things out of cabinets. Yeah. And they know that this provokes symptoms, but they have forgotten. They don't know. And I'm... No, but but they still don't know it because in their world, they think that, you know, they have that on TV, on those cooking shows when they go behind the other person and they, you know, announce um, behind, you know, so they think that they can still do it. I have um, two situations in my life currently where I'm, that that keeps going, you know, these um, interactions with people not understanding what we need and what we don't need. So, so then how did you deal with that? Or what happened? So, I put up all over the house. Mm-hmm. 10 different sheets of paper that said, I have a brain injury. And I taped them all over the house. How does that equal they need to not do what they think? They see it. Okay. And And so now for at least six months Mm -hmm. on our refrigerator Mm -hmm. is an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper that says, I have a brain injury. Yeah. So if they start to come in to the kitchen, they see that sign, and it reminds them that I'm struggling. Hello. This is your host, Dr. Daniel Avasar. I am a brain injury survivor turned neuroscientist. I got into neuroscience to help me make sense of what happened to my mind after my traumatic brain injury. When I was 18 years old, I suffered a severe traumatic brain injury, and it took me about seven years to regain my cognition, my memory, and to get used to the changes that took place in my mind. I hid what I had been through, and I worked very hard at school. I earned a PhD in neuroscience from Dartmouth, followed by a postdoc researcher position at the University of Oregon. I studied the brain at a neurophysiological, cellular, and systems level, which left me with a bottom-up perspective of what had changed in me after my brain injury. But across my recovery, my education, and my research, I never found anything that accurately represents the brain injury survivor's experience. Once I started meeting other brain injury survivors, I realized how important it is to hear about our experiences firsthand. This podcast is devoted to in-depth discussion with other brain injury survivors, focused on our experiences, our problems, and the ways we have found to navigate our lives and our struggles. I hope to connect brain injury survivors through our stories. I hope to help the non-brain injured world 
learn more about what we are dealing with. And when possible, I hope to connect what is known about the brain with our unique experiences. Welcome to Experiencing My Brain. The views and opinions expressed in the Experiencing My Brain podcast are intended to promote awareness and provide information of what brain injury survivors have to deal with. This information should not be considered as medical or clinical advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider regarding any medical conditions you may have. This discussion is with a woman named Weeks. We were both in a Facebook brain injury support group, and she had posted a picture um, of a complex-looking quilting machine, and she had made a comment that um, you know she had finally worked hard enough to be able to work at that device for about an hour, I think it was. I knew from the picture, I mean, I could tell that this thing is complicated, and um she would at least have a few things to say about the relearning process, the rebuilding, specifically um, rebuilding inner capacities that get damaged and injured after a brain injury. So I never had any idea that we would get into the grief discussion and how true that would ring for me. Um, Until this discussion, I had been to seminars. I had actually been to several seminars and spoken to at least a few brain injured people at support groups, but what they had said about um, grief or what they were dealing with, it never really, um, it never really fit my experiences. It never really rang true for me. In this discussion, we get into two very different and very complex levels of invisible injury with brain injury. One is the mental health problems and the other is the effort and work to restore what you've lost. In the intro segment here, um, it's a it's a good example, a really clean glimpse of the types of invisible problems that you have to deal with uh, when you have a brain injury. Also, I applaud Weeks for her method of advocating for herself. This is episode nine of Experiencing My Brain. Can you say what you said again? About about um, being at a certain age and and just wanting to be yourself, or about you turned an age of 60 you had this feeling of not um i feel like i'm tired of worrying about things that i don't need to worry about okay right and so then what are the things that you didn't need to worry about or what are the things that um were aggravating in that way i think i put pressure on myself (laughs) and uh that i did i shouldn't have put on myself I think I have worried about judgment from people that I that wasn't there. That wasn't or, there. Or maybe it was. Even if it was there, why do I care? You did a recovery that's hard to do, and I've done a similar process. So it's a different world. And so the feelings you just described, I'm like, I had the same things. I'm only now getting rid of the shame and, I don't know, other um, judgment and criticism you know and i think what people tell you about getting older is that if you're smart you realize that some of those things are a choice you're making yeah um the shame that 
Shame is a coat you can take off. <laughs> it right. It all it all is um take offable or donnable. Right. And so I'm going through my early after my brain injury classes I started taking and one was a philosophy class and the concept was love is a choice. And at first I didn't agree with that. And then I'm like, oh no, it is a choice. And meanwhile, I'm like rebuilding my cognition. So I'm like, everything is a choice. But um, when I normally think like that, I really am just detached from myself. So now I'm trying to not be detached. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I've had, I've had a lot of different losses in my life and a lot of different things I had to overcome. And so it, at some point, and I think it comes, some of it, at least for me, has come with age, mm-hmm. um, is that you wear, you're aware that you don't have that much time. And oh, wow. So yeah. Do you want to spend the time you have worrying about things that aren't in your control or things like if I'm worrying about the fact that I had to ask the nurse to speak more slowly. She doesn't get why you need her to go slower. Yeah. Yeah. So am I going to spend a minute of my precious life worrying about whether she's thinking that I'm stupid or that like I, I, that is a choice I am making to care or not care about what she thinks. Is a choice, but also there's a reaction. It's, um, I guess it's like a fight because as soon as I get that, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not getting into a fight with them, but I need to outsmart them or I need to, it actually led me to just dismiss all of them. I can't even talk to them. But, but see, the thing is, the idea is that to not get into that fight or flight mode in the first place. Yeah. If you're able to make that switch, then how does life continue or how do you... Uh, do you want to back up and talk about what happened? Yeah. That's, <laughs> yes. Question or what I wrote is what happened. <laughs> because, I, you know, it might, it, I don't know if it's useful or not. So you can always edit it if it's not. Actually, you're right. I'm trying to build a way to get people to where we're at. And I forget because now I've, I've been talking to brain injury survivors, other people since 2017, but it's been really hard, which is leading to like me trying to send out a net to anyone that will talk about this. So, okay, um, what happened and how how do you explain it? Because I'm sure you've explained it very well and thought about it. I think about it, it feels like every minute of every day, but right. it's not. But I will just give you, I, I think it's important from my perspective. Yes. Um, to what happened before the injuries. What is your um, experience with its respiratory conditions? Yeah. Growing up, I, I had what was diagnosed as asthma and allergies, and it was it was always out of control. It was the dark ages of asthma. Mm. They didn't have medications. So go back. Sorry. Yeah. What does that mean, the dark ages of asthma? Because I grew up where I had friends that had karate, had asthma, they had their inhalers. They're back on the mat, you know? So This is, this is pre-inhaler. How did you deal with it, though? Um, I spent a lot of time in the emergency room oh, wow. or in the doctor's office. I could not run. Uh, I couldn't play outside with other kids. I was just wheezing all day, every day. Is it like the brain injury 
constantness or was it different? Oh, it. I think it's worse because you feel like you're going to die every minute, you know? And, like you go over for sleepover, somebody's got like a dusty basement and suddenly, you know, you have to go home because, and there's no medication. Right. So then what would happen to your... Um, I couldn't breathe. Just yeah. Something. And what'd you do? I'm trying to imagine it. I don't know it, you know? Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine. It's um, it's like this invisible disability. Yeah. That, that nobody thinks is real. <laughs> wow. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So um, at any rate, fast forward, medications come on the market. Yeah. When I was 16, they developed new medications. I could run for the first time, and that was super awesome. And people don't know I have it. It gets under control. Mm-hmm. And then um, the beginning of my 40s, um, I, I want to bore you with all the details because we need to talk about brain stuff. No, but this is not um, unimportant. At the beginning of my 40s, I needed surgery. There were like eight different doctors who missed the fact that I needed surgery. Which surgery is this? It's they needed. Uh, I, unbeknownst to me, I had a problem with my lower esophageal valve that was okay. refluxing things into my lungs and causing constant respiratory infections. Wow! So basically, for ten years, I was disabled, and it, it like fifty percent of every month. I was on steroids and antibiotics, and it it affect. I lost my forties basically. It was like you were dropped into it, or no? They didn't know for ten years. That nobody. Okay, they didn't know. Right, they didn't. ten years. Wow. And then I had the surgery, and I thought like I got my life back, you know, and um, and then in. Christmas morning of 2012, mm-hmm. um, we were going to go skiing as a family, and I woke up with a norovirus, which I don't know if you remember right around then that uh, Hillary Clinton fell and hit her head because she had a virus. I guess I remember that a little bit. Yeah, and- there were a bunch of people. I think George Bush fell and hit his head, too. There were a bunch of people falling from this virus. I got the virus. I was walking to the bathroom and in Christmas morning and I passed out. I was nauseated, mm-hmm. passed out from the virus and hit my head on a marble table that was in our hallway. Oh. And my husband found me a pool of blood and um, wow. I needed eight staples to my head and was in the hospital for four days. Okay. I didn't I didn't get any PT or OT. And I the, the neurologist just didn't know what to do with me. Right. So I kind of gradually figured out, you know, my limitations. And gradually over time, I got back, you know, like over about two years. I feel like I started to feel a lot better. There were things I couldn't do like salsa dancing or, you know, things with a lot of movement, but I was at the gym four days a week, five days a week. I'm a long distance cycler. I was cycling. What were you doing otherwise? Were you working? Were you? Oh yeah. My husband and I have had a business for 23 years. Right. Where I'm a 
textile designer, quilt maker. I've written six books and we have a, we published a periodical and I teach around the world. And so I was like literally flying around the world teaching. And, and then December, 2019, I was taking our dog to an emergency vet. Uh, and I was with my daughter in uh, a car in the left turn lane, waiting to turn into the parking lot. Mm-hmm. A 23-year-old who wasn't paying attention rear-ended me and totaled our car wow. at a high speed. And, um, and I had headaches and stuff. Um, and we replaced the car. Um, a month and a day later, my husband was driving uh, on the highway and somebody else rear-ended us. Wow. Wow. And damaged the car we had just had for two weeks. <laughs> wow. But mostly, I then had massive concussion symptoms. So, uh, I had the TBI and then two being rear-ended mm-hmm. twice yeah. a month. Yeah. It was bad. So what was it like at that point? My eyes weren't tracking together. Okay. Um, and I had um, process, and I still have processing deficits and memory deficits and <clears throat> vision problems. So walking down the street was nauseating. Yeah. Massive sensory overload i just felt like i just everything was overwhelming yeah so then what'd you do um i realized from the 2012 tbi Mm -hmm. that the neurologist was not going to help me yeah yeah one yeah (laughs) do i get the prize (laughs) well i i just think of it as we're on our own to figure it out no we're not we aren't on our own. But whoever helped you, you found them. Nobody helped you find them. Well, but you know, so with the respiratory thing, yeah, I live in Chicago. Eight doctors missed the fact that I needed to have my stomach reconstructed. But right. because I am the person I am, I found out that I needed to go to Denver for medical care. And then I walked in the room in Denver and 15 minutes in, they were like, yeah, we suspect you had this problem and you need surgery. Right. So I think if, you, if we all listen to our voices that say, I think there's something that's been missed. I think I need more help. Yeah. Then because we, we're so blessed with the internet, then you just start looking and thinking, there's got to be, some, I'm not the only person in the world to have a concussion. Somebody knows how to treat this. And I need to find that person. So yeah. I, living in Chicago, I knew that there's this, you know, the best rehab hospital in the country is here. Yeah, that's nice. So I looked on their website and I looked, I just searched concussion there's a concussion clinic i'm like done call them up give me an appointment 
Yeah. And they said, okay. So I went in into this incredible facility. And at first they told me it was going to be eight weeks. And I'm like, great, done, eight weeks. That sounds fantastic. And of course it wasn't. Right. Now it's been two years. But I, at every step, I said to myself, is there something more I can do to improve my outcome? I wasn't waiting for somebody to tell me. I wasn't waiting for somebody to, you know, give me the resource. I just researched and I kept asking. And when the PT and OT said that they were done, I kept saying to my doctor, I don't think your goals for my recovery are as high as my goals are. My goals for my recovery are higher than what you have set out for me. And did they understand that or did it matter? You know, I actually think it that did matter. It did matter? Because, because she said, let me send you to um, Dr. Michael Zost, who's a vision rehab guy. Right. And he's 45 minutes from my house, which seems like a long way for me. But I know people go all over the country. I went to Denver for my lungs. So, you know, 45 minutes, sure. That has been a real game changer. So so once you got there, what kind of stuff were you doing? And how did it... Um, So I look at... I see it like there's the poor and the rich in the social sense where if you can get to the right help... You can get better. So then people are getting better. And then other people are like, I don't know how to get to that. And it doesn't even make sense. But um, the other thing you describe is like you were pushing yourself so much and also finding the way to solve that problem. I think other people may not be able to do that or don't have the resources. Or I think, you know, one of the things I've learned from the concussion community where we met, and apparently she's closing down that group, which made me sad, but... Um, what I've realized is that, so in another lifetime, when I was in my 20s, I lived in Japan uh-huh. for eight years, and I lived in a socialized medicine situation. Gotcha. And there are, the pluses to that are that, is that everybody gets some kind of care. The minuses to that are that because everybody gets some kind of care, there isn't a system that allows for specialists hmm. to the extent that we have. Okay, interesting. So I think, you know, we see it a lot of different people in that group that we're in who don't have access to vision rehab people. And, and I, my heart breaks for them. I, I look at it as, you know, I had my double vision and the fatigue and the state I was in, it wasn't as bad as most. It, it wasn't that bad because I found the right therapist and they did experimental therapy and it relieved it. But then I was into the other issues, but I couldn't even get into those issues until that part was um, not like that. So I only had like a taste of that. Yeah. And in that sense, I could see the difference because you're completely consumed by what's happening. <laughs> My dog's asking to sit in my lap of course um, come on dog uh, what's your dog's name kip kip um, he, he, um so you know i i kind of refer to it 
and I've, I've told my therapist, like my, you know, PTOT vision people, the thing for me about having a brain injury or a concussion, however you want to put it, my grandfather used to say, if I had my glasses, I could find my glasses, <laughs> which is brilliant, right? Yeah. And so if you didn't have a brain injury, you'd find it easier to find access for care to get for a brain injury. Like, right, right. So if you didn't have a brain injury, it would be easier to find, for you to find somebody to help you with a brain injury. You know? and, 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 it, and it is, number one, we have a brain injury. That's actually, you know, the whole thing I'm trying to do, I was explaining it to my wife, and she's like, oh, you're just talking about what actually a brain injury would be. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the point. She's like, well, why do you need to explain that? I'm like, you don't know what it's like to have a brain injury and all these weird hurdles that get placed in front of you. And it's definitely partly the medical system and access to specialists, but it's also that we have a brain injury that's, I'm, I'm trying to write an essay about the constantness and it's funny to try to write about it, but yeah. Um, you know, and I would also say to your wife, I brought it up a little bit in our emails that I was talking about um, making croissant, like the pastry chefs. Right, right. So the way that they make croissant to get those like flaky um, layers in the croissant is the pastry chef rolls out a big piece of dough and then he puts a big, he or she puts a big block of butter on top of it. Okay. A big square, like the size of like a legal pad or something, right? Eight and a half by 11. So a large piece of butter, yeah. Large, thick, wow. like half a ream of paper. Wow. Bam, in the middle. And then they fold up the corners of the dough on top of it. So it's sealed. Sounds good. And then they roll it out. And then they fold it again. And then they roll it out. And so there's this, it's it's called like laminating the dough. So you have these layers of dough and then butter and then dough and then butter. And it's like phyllo pastry or something like that. You might have seen like lots of little layers, right? And I think that the recovery from... And your best recovery, whatever you can get, mm-hmm. is laminated between the physical services that you can get access to, but also your mental health. And so, specifically yeah. grieving, yeah. grieving the losses, grieving that this is not what you planned for yourself that this isn't, you didn't want this. In, in, in many of our cases, we didn't do anything to precipitate it. Yeah. It just, it's a vic- you know, we're victims of a bad situation, but that is a big hunk of butter. <laughs> you know, and so you got to... So how, how do you do that? How do you so grieve I that? I think what you do is allow yourself to feel it. Hmm. And to understand that, you know, some of the time you're doing the therapy. Right. And then some of the time you have to make sure that you're doing the things you can to guard your mental health. And that includes explaining to people what you need from them. That includes being 
allowing yourself to be sad and realizing it's not a bad thing to be sad. It's just what you need to do is part of the healing. And that things like shame to be awareness, like, am I, am I, am I taking on shame when I don't need to take on shame because I didn't do anything wrong? Like I'm thinking about all my cognitive regaining was a need to not be a person that's like thinking like that or can't think, I guess, can't think. It was all shame in that sense. But, and, and see, I think, and I can only speak for myself, but I think sometimes we channel sadness into other emotions. Channel sadness into Sadness. So yeah. it, 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 I think it, we don't need to feel shame because we an injury happened. Yeah. You know, we didn't. It's one thing if you feel shame because maybe you were driving drunk and it was preventable or something like that. Maybe that's, I can understand the sense of shame that you have to work through, but, um, or regret, like maybe you reframe it as regret that you wish you hadn't done something, but this is a medical condition. Yeah. And I, and maybe it's because like, is somebody who has a broken leg or somebody who's diabetic, are they supposed to feel shame too? Like, why are we, why are we, atta- why are we feeling? What one reason that, that yeah. somehow we're less of a person because we had an injury. Right. Well, I don't know why we feel that way, feel that way, but we do. But I think it can be a choice to decide to, to like, look at it. Yeah. Like hold up that shame and say like, Really? Do I want to do that to myself? Do I want... Should I be feeling shame? Can I let that go? Can I decide that I didn't do anything wrong? I have nothing to be shamed about? Or even if I did something wrong and I made a choice, can we just forgive ourselves and move on with life? That's a really um, powerful way to like connect it. I look at it as... um this in my head stuff that's such a different world and then the normal world that I eventually like was able to go back into. I could not let go of what I had expected of myself, what I thought I I needed to do. Putting myself in this academic sense because I thought I needed to be something, like it was a hard learning, hard, kind of like a traumatic childhood in a sense of not really getting supported by it. Yeah. And so that sense, I think that induced a lot of shame in itself. Um, yeah. But I think that there's something so powerful in saying, I can choose whether or not to take on that shame and participate in it. Yeah. Or decide that, um, like, I grieve. I, I grieve. That's that sort of that, that laminated pastry of, like I do my therapy, but I grieve things like, you know, I told my husband, like, we went to, with our daughter, like the year before these car, these two car accidents, we went to a Bruno Mars concert with our daughter when she oh. was like a senior in high school. And it was so fun. And we danced and we sang and I had earplugs in because of the 2012 injury. Of course. But I 
was standing up for two hours, dancing and singing and having a great time. And I said to him, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do that again. You know, and yeah. that's a sad thought. There's many things that you will never be able to do again. Is like salsa dancing. I'm never going to be able to salsa dancing. Actually, I never, I never say never only because of... um. You know, like if you work towards a thing, parts of it can come back with enough time and enough effort. My my recovery became working towards this, working towards that, and then yeah. not even really, never feeling that I accomplished it because it's always like it keeps going. But in that sense, I did get a lot better. You, so you're able to, sh- are you able to share what you're going through with other people? Yeah, I am. And and you, you'll be, you might be horrified. <laughs> I tell you this, um, my husband and my daughter forget because I look the same, right? Uh-huh. And so one day I got really mad because they were, I, I was in my fight or flight mode. Right. I was frustrated that they were interrupting me constantly mm-hmm. and creating a lot of, they were provoking symptoms, basically is the way to put it. How are they provoking? And I would ask the question there, are they causing a reaction or in you that is provoking the symptoms or are they really provoking the symptoms? They were really provoking the symptoms yeah. because they, it was like too much sensory stuff. Gotcha, gotcha, yes. So, um, for example, especially before I started this round of vision therapy, mm-hmm. a year ago when I was um, still really dealing with a lot of symptoms, I told them that the hard thing for me would be if I'm in the kitchen and I'm trying to cook dinner, I'm thinking about, okay, I need to cut an onion. The onions are over there. The cutting board is over there. The knife is there. And I'm reading a recipe. And there's a lot of places I have to go. Yeah. A lot of head movement. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of memory stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was very challenging. And the worst thing they could do at that time would be to come into the kitchen and try to move around me. So I'm trying to make soup and I've got, I'm looking for the onion and I'm going over here to get the knife and I'm getting the chopping board. And they're like crossing behind me getting things out of cabinets yeah, and they know that this provokes symptoms, but they have forgotten. They don't know. And I'm no, but, but they still don't know it because in their world, they think that, you know, they have that on TV on those cooking shows when they go behind the other person and they, you know, announce, um, behind, you know, so they think that they can still do it. I have, um, two situations in my life currently where I'm, that that keeps going, you know, these um interactions with people not understanding what we need and what we don't need. So so then how did you deal with that? Or what happened? So I put up all over the house mm-hmm. like ten different sheets of paper that said, I have a brain injury and I taped them all over the house. How does that equal they need to not do they what they think? It. They see it. Okay. So and they're reminded and so now for at least six months mm-hmm. on our refrigerator mm-hmm. is an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. 
says, I have a brain injury. Yeah. So if they start to come in to the kitchen, they see that sign and it reminds them that I'm struggling. Wow. So let me ask, do, do you tell them about the details of the struggle? Oh, yeah. And what did they respond in that sense? I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't, I forget because we've always cooked together as a family. Mm. And so then I have to feel a sadness. Yeah. So then, then there's the, there's that layer of grieving again, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, we can't do this now. So you know what? I am going through this cycle now for the first time because I added the um, ability to grieve. And I, I'm not like I know how to do it. I don't know how to do it, but I'm figuring it out. There was never any feelings in my brain injury recovery. So I've been like, I guess, figuring it out. To get through the butter like that, I need those tools. I'm learning those tools. I think the thing that, you know, what I love about my doctor is they said, we want to approach your concussion recovery from a lot of different angles. Yeah. We want you to do PT and we want you to do OT. We also want you to see a therapist. Right. And we also want you to take supplements. And we also want you to get acupuncture. And, you know. How were you actually getting these? Was insurance involved? Were they providing yes. it? Like, because being able to get to those things is a huge. Um, it's true. Yeah. It is a huge part of it. My husband is uh, an academic and also my business partner. So um, we're not in high paying professions. Academics, in which case I'm yes. like, oh, I, yes, I. So I finished, when I finished my postdoc, I got out. That's also when the emotional stuff kicked in for me. So in the recovery with brain injury and doing the work of it, how did your regaining of being able to quilt come about? And what was that like? You know, it, it, it was this combination of doing all of the different vision, um, exercises that the vision rehab doctor has had me doing mm -hmm. since I've been seeing him and building up my tolerance for uh, the ability to move my head and focus on things that are moving. Mm. But the mental health part of it has really been huge because what I was realizing for me is that Part of the reason I wasn't sleeping at night, which was is such a huge component to the recovery, what? is that I was sad. You know, you you turn off that light and you suddenly can't work anymore. And then all of the disappointments and the frustrations of the injury, they're there. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to distract you from them. What happened? Or what would happen would be that I would tell myself I couldn't sleep, mm -hmm. and then I would, um, you know, watch Netflix, try to read something or whatever. Yeah, that of course. So yeah, telling myself that I wasn't tired yet. I didn't realize it because I kept thinking like, "Well, I just can't sleep," mm -hmm. and the doctor put me on Lunesta to help me sleep. And that did help me somewhat, but uh, I 
um, took my doctor's advice and started going to acupuncture. And what happened? Uh, I was lying on the table and telling her that sleep was part of my problem. Hmm. They put the needles in you and then they turn off the lights usually for about half hour, 45 minutes. And then they come back and you know, do other things. And she turned out the lights and I just started crying. Hmm. Lying there with all these needles in me. There was no pain whatsoever. Yeah. I started crying and part of it, they say is that, that like the needles, like in your head and, you know, they help you release emotions that you've been carrying around. The acupuncturist said it's like an emotional detox. That makes sense. Can I share with you in the yeah. time when I wasn't, I was like, I need to know why I wasn't emotional. And then I was like, I'll get a massage. I started to cry about not feeling anything. And then it wasn't like, um, then it got better, but it started like at that point. And I was like, something is coming out of me. I kind of know what you're talking about in a sense. Yeah. I, when I was lying there, I thought I need to do everything I can. And I need to be honest with myself about why I'm not sleeping. Right. And I wasn't sleeping. Right. I wasn't allowing myself to fall asleep because I was afraid of the pain that I would feel when I, when I turned out the lights. I was just going to be alone with my sadness over this injury. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sucks. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you're in the room with a boogeyman, you know. And it's like, so overwhelming. It can be fully awful. overwhelming. Yeah. It's awful. And then I decided to just like get comfortable with that. It was just, it's a choice. Yeah. To allow myself to be comfortable with that grief and to just tell myself, you can make a choice as to whether, you know, you're going to be afraid of this, afraid of that darkness in every sense of the word, or whether you're just going to look at it. And then I realized, uh, like something the acupuncturist said, she said, she said, your body is working so hard to recover and you need to, you need to allow it to recover. Mm. And I thought, that recovery happens during sleep. Yeah, that yeah, that makes so sense. So I decided, like overnight, that I was going to change my. They call it sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. And um, the acupuncturist said, "You need a ceremony." She's very Japanese, and she said, "You need a ceremony for sleep because that's where your healing is going to happen." Right. Right. So I thought, I like that idea of the ceremony. Overnight, I changed what I was going to do. I decided to take a bath and get to bed early, you know, at like, like in bed at 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night mm -hmm. and um, turn off my devices and tell myself I didn't have to be afraid of that sadness, that I could handle it. Wow. And then I started listening to this podcast in the dark called Nothing Much Happens. 
nothing might happen. It's bedtime stories for grown-ups. <laughs> That's nice. And the woman who reads them reads them very slowly. Hmm. And they're happy topics about, like, she went for a walk around the lake, and the sun was out, and the leaves were beautiful. Like, really, nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then she reads it a second time, even more slowly. And if you're still awake, then she says, sweet dreams. That makes sense. There was something about the combination of all of those things that like my symptoms just really got better like in a couple of days they started to really improve yeah and it gave me the confidence that i could set some goals for myself like using my quilting machine which i hadn't been able to do for two years so in that confidence that you just mentioned what was your um thinking process like Setting the goals based on learning that you can change something, how did those things like connect? Well, I really, I, I like the idea of the brain plasticity. Mm -hmm. You know, when I went into vision therapy, I told the um, doctor, one of my goals was to use that machine again. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned from people in various rehab you know, therapists and stuff, is that nothing sets their heart a flutter more than somebody giving them a goal. <laughs> yeah, that exists. You know, yeah. what, they, what they don't want to do is spend their life and their training right. on somebody who doesn't have a goal. I think they think in goals as well. Their um, training is in yeah. goals. Yeah. Basically, therapists love goals and people who, who give them goals and so I, and you had said that their goals you, their goals are not your goals well They're, I think like the first round of therapy uh, like PT and OT that I had mm -hmm. their definition of a recovery was a much lower level of functioning than the definition of recovery that I had in my mind why do you and, think that discrepancy happened um you know, I don't know how to say this in uh, in any other way. So if, if this, this comes across as uh, awful, please forgive me because it's not my intention. But No, that's okay. Cause I, I, yeah. I, I think they are used to people who aren't as, who don't want to be as high functioning or who haven't been high functioning or haven't set the goals for their lives that I've set for my life, or I don't know, you know, but even just like exercise, this is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. You know, prior to my injury, I was doing uh, you know, spin classes and strength training and everything four to five times a week for an hour, like interval training, super high demanding yeah it, and their and their definition of you know exercise tolerance would be that i could walk for 30 minutes a day three times a week right you know was that their definition because they don't have many people who 
who say, oh, no, my definition is that I want to be able to bike 100 miles in a day. Well, you want to do what you were able to do. I want to say you knew that you could get there, but you needed to go back to it. The way I reframed it every single time we talked about it was I will accept that I might not be able to get everything back, Mm -hmm. but I would like to do everything I can to see what the best outcome is. Yes, yes. So I would like to have that higher level goal. I want to be able to go back to my fitness class, to spin class or whatever. Of course, yeah. Walking walking three times a week for 30 minutes, you know, maybe that's a goal that is acceptable to other patients you have, but that's not even close to it for me. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's just kind of like, I don't know why they thought that that was enough. I would be interested in in learning that. Why? And so I knew that I had to, you know, the same thing with the quilting machine, that, um, that, that machine is very difficult to use. Right. And, so that, but my um, Dr. Zost, the vision rehab guy I've been going to, he was really excited. And, you know, he's like, can you show me a picture of this thing? Can you describe how it works? And yeah. he wanted to understand how to build, how to train for it. Right. Oh, interesting. That, yeah. He was taking... You know, he was looking at me using that quilting machine the way he would, you know, work with somebody who was a tennis player or something like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. he thought it was an interesting challenge. Indeed. And it is. It's almost like a troubleshooting. Or let me ask, how did he approach it? He um, said part of it is that there's a lot of sensory things happening and because your vision is unstable the other sensory things become more overwhelming yeah so he said we have to stabilize your vision so movement around you is less overwhelming Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you don't you don't get into that fight or flight mode Mm. but the other thing that was a part of that was the sleep my it was like this the combination of the sleep and the mental health part of it with the exercises and the specific tools that he uses he has all of these convergent and divergent circles that i would have to do these different exercises Hmm. there were all of these little um devices that he had me use to work on stabilizing my vision so I could um, like look at let's just say a dot on a window okay and, and stay focused on the dot even if there was movement of other things on the other side of the window and so you were drilling that focus he has had me have a number of devices that help me to retrain what happens between when my eyes see something Uh 
and the message they send to my brain, but also to stabilize my vision. So when I see something, I can hold on to it. There's like a little... Um, At this point in the recording, um, the internet actually cut out and we lost connection, but we picked up the discussion a little while later. A lot of this second half of the discussion builds on what has already been discussed. You know, I think, you know, you made a comment in your email that you want to normalize this for other people. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of suffering that happens with this injury, these injuries. Yeah. And that, you know, if you're lucky, you can get somebody to help you with the physiological aspects of it. But um, I think that my doctor is unusual from what I've heard in um, encouraging people to deal with the mental health part of it. Right, right. Because, because it's really intertwined. It's so intertwined with, you know, the level of your outcome you know, okay. one's outcome. Yeah. Well, and I know for myself that like the, uh, the sleep component of it was intertwined with my mental health for sure. Of course, of course. Cause sleep is so important in the, um, I guess it's physiology, but it's also like whatever is keeping us alive. Like whatever life is, sleep is connected with that. And yeah. if you don't have it, and it really, I guess it's about all the changes and processes that happen in the brain. I think that's a huge reason why we sleep. But yeah, having that time to recover and rebuild is essential. So I... Yeah, I, so I hope yeah. that people will, you know, have, have your goals, you know, and like realize that it's, you want to have goals and you also at the same time um, don't have to be afraid that you won't achieve them. You might not, they may be out of reach. How, how do you, how do you let go of that? You decide, you decide that you're going to be okay, that you can oh. handle it. Okay. <laughs> you know, you, you decide answer, it's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like, you know, you go on a date with somebody and you're not worried that you're going to, like if the date doesn't go well, that you'll never have another date again, right? Mm -hmm. I guess for me, I thought about it as this constant work I had to do to fix myself. And your wording fit a lot of what I was saying because like I'm not satisfied with this. It, they don't understand what I was dealing with. I had too many problems that I felt like um, the therapists weren't getting it. The doctors weren't getting it. So I, I kind of just resorted to trying to figure it out myself and i've met a, a lot of other people like that i like your approach and i just stopped talking to anyone about it is the thing I, I was like i have the resources i need and i need to figure this out myself versus ha meeting like that doctor sounds amazing also i would like to see what he thinks 
deeper than that in terms of the brain stuff. So that's really cool. I just want yeah. to that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I think it's a combination of you're so right in saying that there is not equity. Even if even in socialized medicine where everybody has access, right. they don't have access. Let's not pretend that they're that everybody has access to the same things. They don't. Yeah. And so part of why I'm willing to like be so candid about my struggles, you know, physical and psychological and everything, is that um, I I do think that it's important for us all to help anybody in any way that we can because, you know, we've been the recipients of great care ourselves. And if we can, you know, help somebody else, um, that seems like a small price to pay. And, you know, in that sense for me, um, I have it less with the care and more with the, the privilege and I guess other um, other resources that I was able to utilize and leverage to then do something that I feel like is a lot like what you're describing. So um, have this underlying thing of like I still didn't find anyone that I can connect with about it, except for people with brain injuries. So that I have like I guess I have anger about that. You know, and, and yeah. you know, and, and Len, is it like is it anger or is it sadness? Because I think I think <laughs> it's definitely sadness. I think it's grief. And it's, yeah, thank you. Grief. Yes. And I'm, uh, I'm only now getting to that and only, no, it's not recent now. It's been a few months since a brain injury, a friend with a brain injury, uh, Nancy from the first episode I put out, mm-hmm. she got me thinking about it as grief. And as soon as I was able to put it into that, like it's mental box, I was able to deal with it better. It's still been hard and I'm hitting these really emotionally heavy parts that are affecting my life and then I need to deal with it. Um, so, well, I can tell you yeah. that, you know, I mean, and I, and you probably know this as well is that the brain is so interesting in how it chooses when you're allowed to feel things. Yeah. You know, that the brain protects you when it thinks you're overwhelmed and you can't handle something. Mm. And, you know, I, I had this boss once who said that she had migraines. And she said the migraines are always after the crisis, not during them. Oh, right, right. So you're and in that I, zone. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah, it's after. And, yeah. And I know, you know, um, people who, you know, are in the middle of a battle or whatever you know, and who are in World War Two or, you know, fighting in the trenches or whatever, they don't grieve then, right? Yeah. You know, they, they grieve when they're home and they're safe and their brain says that it can take it. Mm. And so I know just from my various losses I've had in my life that uh, grief doesn't have a schedule, Right. And you never know when it's going to pop up. Um, but, and you also don't know how it's going to pop up. And I, I guess I've just seen in various people in my life, um, especially I think men are socialized to experience anger and rage more than sadness. Yeah. But, um, 
but sometimes it's like control or perfectionism or whatever. Um, you know, but basically I think if you've had an injury, you've had loss and, you know, different degrees, figuring out how you're going to deal with that and how you're going to channel it, um, you know, is like, is just as important to me as, you know, vision therapy or speech therapy or whatever. Letting, letting the emotions happen and be with it or whatever the term is. Yeah. That is, um, that's hard to do. I guess I'm stuck or maybe I'm not stuck because I am feeling these parts now for the first time, but, um, it's just still overwhelming. Well, and I think that's, I think that that's what in the same way, you know, that like my doctor at, um, ability lab said, we're, we want you to treat this from a variety of ways and just as the same way you don't know how to do vision therapy yourself, you don't know how to do psychotherapy yourself. You know, like you're not supposed to have to deal with it yourself. Right. You know, if, if you have, um, and you know, I, I, I know that um, there are lots of therapy sources, certainly where I live for people who um, are in low or no income brackets, there's, you know, there's access to uh, mental health care for them as well. That's great, so, yeah. you know, I don't think you need to, it's not, I think we should treat like the mental health part of this the same way we treat um, getting a cold or, you know, getting, um, you know, um, strep throat or something that it isn't like you're mentally ill or you're not, or that you have a lifetime of therapy or you have none. But, you know, I think it enters um, a taboo, though. It enters a certain you don't want to talk about it the outside world gets triggered by it or it's emotional for them too. And so then it's hard for them to deal with, but either way, but it's entering it's, a different it's realm. Like it's, but it's, do you want to build, do you want to buy into that? And, and maybe because, you know, I've, I've had family members who, um, I mean, uh, who've dealt with depression or whatever. It's like, it's only a taboo if you decide it is. Right. I'm not like it gets it's the shame I'm like I'm not putting on that coat <laughs> yeah thank, thank you for saying that because you know no I, I don't I don't want to put on that coat I have and I think I grew up with that coat or at least um well really it's being children of immigrants being products of generations that were surviving that they really yeah. couldn't get into that emotional stuff at all so now we're not in exactly. that now we're not in that place but it's still hard to let let go of it. Um, but I, this is how we all grow, though, right? Yeah, we have this course, conversation. Yeah. yeah. We have this conversation, and then I'm telling you, like, one way I'm looking at something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you listen, and you decide whether that is helpful to you or not. Right. Right? And I'm connecting and, with it anyway. I'm already connecting with it based on the... Yeah. Messed up, the, my brain injury experience has a lot of events and emotions and lack of emotions, which now I'm dealing with. Um, See, that's when I would say that my, like what my acupuncturist said is like, that's detoxing. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, that's super healthy. Bring it on. Yeah. Right. Bring it on because you know what, you don't need to carry that around anymore. Hmm. That, that's a heavy, that's a heavy thing. Like, 
you know, so I just, I hope you and, and I, I will be continuing to, you know, as it comes up, as, as I feel it, I will grieve it and I will do whatever I need. And I will like the other day, this is a perfect example. I needed, we needed three things uh, for our household, like, like counter, you know, the spray, um, that you put on the countertop to clean off the kitchen or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I needed three things from the store and I had in my mind that I wanted to go to this small, we have this very, like sort of the urban targets, very small target. It's very manageable. Gosh. My husband had in mind that, um, it would be easier to go to this enormous supermarket. Right. I walked in the supermarket and I got the cart and I saw that there were a lot of people moving around. And because it's such a big supermarket, I was going to have to walk so much farther to get the three things that I needed. And then I saw that there were these long, long lines. And then there were people moving everywhere around me. And I just put the cart back and I went back out to the car with nothing. And I said to my husband, yeah, I'm not doing this today. Can you take me to the target? This is too much. My brain is tired. So what did he say? He's like, oh, sorry, I had no idea. Right. Let me, let me take you to the target. And, you know, let me ask you how, in how long a time did you assess all those factors that you just listed information? I was in the store uh-huh. for probably 20 seconds. Right. You assess, you know, all these things, how they bother you. And you're like, no. So right. I've used the Parkwood pacing system. Do you know that? system no so the parkwood pacing system and there's an app and everything they told me about this uh, my therapist told me about this you you assign yourself 12 points a day mm-hmm. and then you you figure out what tasks take how much energy out of you and you plan your day around budgeting points gotcha and when you get when you get to 12 points you are you are required to do something restorative until you do anything else right do they Um, teach you to strategize and implement that or do they is that like you have to figure that out they explained it to me Uh and they gave me a form to with a like a journal calendar sort of thing because you need to assign the points you need to set those values up yeah Yeah. i need so for example i have a colleague i work with and we work virtually she talks very quickly (laughs) i love her but she takes a lot of points right it's better if i talk to her early in the day than later in the day because she takes a lot of points after i talk to her yeah then I then I go walk the dog or something. Okay, so that's when yeah. you add the restorative factor. Right. So that, yeah, and so that's so interesting. Um, and so you use that strategy and you just apply it to your life. Yeah, but you know, also, you tell yourself, like, I do not have the points right now to go into the grocery store with all those people. Yeah. That is like kind of, there, there isn't, you know, you can 
you might feel emotion about it, but it also can just be a statement of like how much gas is in the car. Right. No, it's, it's brilliant because you don't have that um, that gauge unless this point system introduces that gauge, and now you have to keep track of that gas tank um, because otherwise you wouldn't even be paying. You wouldn't even be thinking about that gas tank. But you know what's so incredible about it is that I've realized that there are certain people who take too many points. <laughs> and I, and okay. I'm just not dealing with them. Oh, wow. Okay. So I've just like stopped. Like, and there are certain things that you, you sit there and you're like, wow, I didn't realize, like for me, we live in a 1930s house and with like a, a wood burning fireplace and staring at the fire that gives me like three or four points. You know? Sure. Well, so your, your visual <laughs> symptoms then, are they still there and just getting remediated or where are you at with that now? It basically kind of feels like, yeah, I'm still, I still have, you know, cause this like the grocery store thing mm -hmm. that was just, that was just Saturday. That was just a few days ago. Mm -hmm. Basically I'm managing my symptoms right now. And um, I'm still doing the vision rehab. And I think I will probably, I expect to be managing the symptoms for the rest of my life in at one level or another. Right. But, but I've decided that wherever, why, wherever I end up, I'm going to grieve what I need to grieve and find happiness in that. Wow. Whether it's what I wanted or not. Yeah. That there's so much power in that um, ability. Yeah, and I think also, you know, the like, there are lots of things in life that you th thought were going to go one way and didn't go that way. <laughs> That's life. And, yeah, right. and and then it's sort of like there's that that line from that Cheryl Crow song of it's not getting what you want, it's wanting what you've got. Hmm. You know. I don't know. I, I think like kind of the secret of happiness is choosing it, <laughs> you right, know, and, right. and choosing to let go of the disappointments and see what's there. Yeah. And you don't have that much time. And, you know, am I going to spend my time um, sad that I can't swim laps anymore? Or that I get overwhelmed in the grocery store? Or am I going to use, am I going to focus on the fact that um, I have a 20-year-old daughter who's going for her first internship, final round of an internship opportunity, and I'm excited for her. Uh, we, we're, ha we're having a big blizzard today, and it's really beautiful. You there, know, or yeah, there, there's it, a lot. There's a lot to be happy about and to be... Um, doesn't mean you, you can't be sad too, but they can be concurrent. Really? That just makes me think that where you're at with this is so much more... I don't know if the right word is evolved or just have enough experience with your feelings that you've learned to be able to do this because um, I think for some people that they can't even begin to process and feel beyond the pain or... I, I can't do well, that. You know, I think it's also if you've if you've done a lot of therapy, you you figure that out too, because mm. you have guidance from people who know who understand how to get you there. So I think having had um, several years of therapy, 
before my injuries helped prepare me. Right. So you had that perspective to, from the asthma. Yeah. yeah. And if I need it again next week, I'll go get it because it's kind of like if I need more, th- if I need more PT or whatever, if, if I injure a hamstring, I'm going to get that therapy. If I go through a rough, dark place, I'm going to get some help. I didn't even have an awareness of the shame because I was so caught up in needing to be a certain kind of person. And it actually was good because it helped me in my recovery. Once I realized how much the shame and the needing to be this way and like getting my, all the emotions that are connected from my identity need to be a certain person. You know, my, I'm about to do something awesome with my life. College starts brain injury, you know? So it's like, I still yeah. have that need in me. And now I'm um, more at peace with it because I also realize I can't, you know, everything that I wanted it to be didn't really work out. And I was working, I guess I was a workaholic in a world of workaholics, but I was also fixing my brain injury stuff. And so it was really um, easy to hide and not get into any of the emotional aspects. And so now it's all, it's not a flood anymore, but I'm just dealing with it now and trying to deal with it. Um, I respect your ability to deal with your emotions. And I think that's pretty awesome. Thank you. I, like I said, I think a lot of that has been because I've gotten help with that. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. That it's kind of like I've had my own, you know, struggles and disappointments and um, dark, you know, feelings of just especially – Before I got the sleep under control, I was just really struggling. I just didn't see my way out of this. It's overwhelming and it completely... It's so overwhelming. And then you're so overwhelmed, you can't figure out how to get help. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I don't want to be oversimplifying it in any way. Or it's just, I, I think I kind of, I came out, I'm beginning to come out the other side. And I, I just want people to, like, pay attention to the sleep. Yeah. That it, it doesn't, you don't think it's as big a deal as it is, but it's like, it's everything for a brain injury. When you don't have it, which you've been there in deep water in that. Um, yeah. It, it doesn't um, make sense. Like, Losing it gives you the perspective of what its value is, is what I'm trying to say. My doctor gave me Lunesta, and the next morning, my husband said, like, you're a different person. Huh. You know, and, and my goal is to see if I can get off Lunesta eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, and use the acupuncture to maybe replace some of the Lunesta, and now, and my better sleep hygiene and everything, and see if I can work my way off of it. But if I can't, that's fine too. How are you a different person if um, he elaborated? Did he? About what? You said oh, you mean that how was said... I a different person? Yeah, he said that you were a different yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. That uh, I, wasn't in the, as, I wasn't as deep in the fight or flight mode. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good thing for sure. Yes, yeah. we know it is. When you reapproach the tool to quilt, how that process go, or how has that been going? So, I decided I talked to my 
the vision rehab doctor. Um, and I, and I, we timed when I would try it for the first time. He said, I want you to get certain skills under your belt before you start. Yeah, and, yeah. and I want you to try it. And I tried it in September for six minutes. And then I was nauseated right. because my vision was still a problem. And I said to myself, well, this is the starting point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I will next time, let's see if I can do seven minutes or eight minutes or whatever. And I tried again in December and I was able to do 30 minutes. So you were drilling or you were working on other strategies at this time? Other... I was doing all the other exercises he told me to do every right. day. And so what, what were those exercises focused on? They're, they were focused on increasing my vision stability mm -hmm. and the ability for my eyes to hold, um, to quickly change focus mm -hmm. uh, for, for divergent and convergent objects. And he has these tools that you look through. And um, it was kind of like um, he, he wants you to, your eyes to be able to quickly refocus on different things um, at different times. Quickly refocus, so yeah. It's, it, it's basically it's challenging, giving you things to challenge your vision, to send information quickly to your brain, and then look at something else and then send that quickly to your brain. How was that... Um... Those were like drills. Those were like your therapy time. How, how did you treat that? And how did that go on a day-to-day -day basis? He, he has these, he has these um, tools that you purchase as part of your therapy. Uh -huh. And they're inexpensive tools like implements for vision rehab. Gotcha. And so I would go into my vision rehab session and he would show me how to use the tool. And then he would say, okay, now go use this you know, twice a day at home until I see you next time. So how was that work? Was it hard? It was hard occasionally, and it was frustrating occasionally. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I would tell myself, like, do it early in the day. Mm -hmm. And um, if you don't get that second round in that day, that's not the end of the world. Right. But um, you need to save some points for that if you want to get better. So you already had the point strategy in place. Yeah. The frustration and the challenges you're talking about on a scale of like one to 10, 10 being the hardest work you've ever done. How was it? The, the vision stuff? Yeah, the vision stuff that you're doing on a daily basis. The stuff that I'm doing on a daily basis at the beginning, um, it, it made me nauseated and sick. Right. It was awful. Right. Sometimes I would only be able to tolerate it for, you know, 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And like at one point, like a 10 for me on a scale of like awful yeah. was at one point he gave me a red balloon and he told me to um, bounce it between my hands. Okay. That was awful. You know, and I would tell myself, tell my husband, I'm like, Okay, now I gotta go make myself nauseated for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Or he'd have me like bouncing the red balloon against the wall between my palm and the wall for gotcha. like fifteen seconds. And then I would be nauseated and feel like I wanted to vomit for twenty minutes. But basically I think because 
you know, I had done, you know, I had done kind of interval training and stuff. I, I would tell myself, you're going to recover. Yeah. Yeah. This, this really is awful right now. Yeah. But you will recover. And that's how you make progress. And mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. if you want to do strength training, you can't use three pound weights forever, right. you know, but that's how you get better is to challenge yourself a little bit and then back off and then, you're, you know, see what you can tolerate next time and then back off. And so it's basically interval training. Yeah. You know, the vision yeah. therapy is basically interval training. So then, uh, in January, I had like what, right before I posted that that thing that you saw with um, me using the machine. Gotcha. I knew he had been on vacation, and I knew he was going to want to know whether I had gone back to the machine. Right. And I'd done thirty minutes in December. And how did and that thirty was month, minutes go? The thirty minutes was great. It just worked out that it was at the end of the day. And so I, I thought, I'm going to do it for 30 minutes. I'm just going to say, if I can do it for 30 minutes, that will be enough. Right, right, right. So I did it for 30 minutes, and then I stopped. And then in January, the night before my appointment, I'm like, he's going to ask me. And I, I feel like I owe it to him to be able to tell him whether I've made progress on this. I hadn't wanted to do it because I was, I was scared. I was scared that I was going to be disappointed and it was going to hurt and I was going to be so sad if I couldn't do it. And I went through all those emotions and I sat there with my husband saying like, you know, what should I, what, what should I quilt? Like, should I, I don't want to do this big thing. I want to do something small so I can feel a sense of success. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't want to set myself up for failure because that's going to hurt. I don't want to hurt. <laughs> you know? So then there was this, this quilt that needed to be quilted. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do the whole thing. That's too much. I'm going to do an hour and I'm going to stop. And that's going to be progress. And so I said, I'm going to see if I can do an hour. Yeah. And, and if I can't do an hour, that's fine. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say to myself like, "Oh, you need to do the whole thing." No, right. you don't need to do the whole thing. Right. That that outside restriction or that um, idea is like the old way. Yeah, and the thing yeah. is that it's kind of like the weight training. Yeah. If you want to build up, you don't just start with 25 pounds. You know, you you work your way up. And so I'm like, okay, I did a half an hour last time. Uh -huh. I'm going to see if an hour is possible, and if it's not, then I'll know, and then I'll be able to tell him. I did the hour, and and he said, and he was so excited for me, the doctor, and he said, and how did you feel? Yeah, how did you and feel? And I said, I said, I felt great, and I felt like I could have gone on longer, but I didn't. Right. And that was, what, that was smart. Yes. <laughs> so... I feel I, I stopped when I felt good about it and I, it's down there still. And, um, I've had a really busy week this week, but at some point I'll go back and I'll do another hour. How, and how I told is your life, my, sorry to ask this separately, but how is your life going aside from that? Are things difficult and stressful? Are they more manageable or is there, I guess some inner connectivity between this 
improvement that you had on the machine and the way your life is? Um, it's it's actually there's there's an, a, a stressful event going on right now, and uh, I'm making a choice to not get ahead of myself on it. That's very wise. But I swear, it's asleep in the acupuncture. Right, of course. It, <laughs> it, it's it's kind of like I feel like the well is deeper. The well is deeper. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like I can handle more than I was able to handle because of the the sleep and the acupuncture i totally get it yeah and it's um my strategy was a lot like what you're describing and my seven years of recovering this is after vision was fixed finding the limit and then working at about 60 percent of that limit and then staying in that no more than 80 percent of my limit with limit is a sort of imaginary just like the point system and so i I see the same increments and then that slowly improving and i always had to throw out that now i'm doing something new i still have it when i'm doing something new i have the initial difficulties and i go through the process and i don't push myself too far which is counterintuitive to how most um non-brain injured people function Yeah, yeah and i think that there's a lot of you know there's a lot of parts of it and um, I think for me, I've told myself, um, like with my respiratory stuff, yeah. uh, I, I, have, I have a rare condition that could at any time just end my life. Right. Or it might not happen at all, right? Yeah. And it's one of these, it, it might progress, mm-hmm. it might not. So I have these other areas in my life where I've had to decide that I'm not going to get ahead of myself and I'm not going to, that if, if it goes south quickly, it's not going to be because I took up smoking, for example. Right, right. Yeah. Or, or that I stopped exercising or that basically I don't want, uh, I want, I think Jeff Bezos recalled it, like the regret minimization framework. So I don't want to feel regret about choices I made. So I'm making good choices. Yeah. So for example, I've probably had my last bit of alcohol in my life. Gotcha. I'm not going to drink probably ever again because my bo- my doctor told me it was a bad idea for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I want my best outcome. So I'm willing to give up that in order to have it, right, you know? Right. And there are certain things like, like getting to sleep under control. And I just want to feel like I've done my best. And wherever I end up, that's enough. It's like everything is better. Like there's less leaks in the boat and you're you're doing a lot that in the end it's like the mature way of looking at it like in the end you're in a better state and the improvement is happening if if you don't manage these factors that there's no even potential for increasing your status like if you're not sleeping if you're not doing that hygiene yeah i know what you mean and i have it with my exercise too i don't have the issues that many people tell me about with diet 
I don't eat unhealthily, but I never really related with them. But I had the same thing with exercise, so much so, and also with my sleep. Um, because without it, I, I can't even do any of this. So yeah. I, I get it, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, and, and then if you feel like you've done a good job, then you don't feel shame. Yeah, yeah. So that's also part of it, too. Actually, yeah, thank you. That Yeah, when we were first emailing and you made that distinction between the you know, brain recovery part and the mental health aspects of all this. Um, I think I, you know, I recovered and yet I never really dealt with, especially the shame and the guilt and it's only now coming up and I'm only now, you know, learning how to even tolerate those feelings. And um, I'm only now getting into that part of the process. Yeah, I... I... I mean, I can, I'm really lucky that my husband is a really good listener in terms of like, I feel safe with him. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. Um, being able to get it back in the car without the stuff at the grocery store and saying like, I can't do that today. It's too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and knowing I'm not going to be judged. Yeah. That's know? really nice. But I think also, like I said, I think, um, going through the process of um, of uh, psychotherapy and, you know, understanding what where my triggers are. We all mm-hmm. have our triggers, right, of uh, things that are upsetting to you and things that take you to a dark place really quickly. Yes. And, um, you know, I think it's one of those things that, at least according to my doctors, you have to be really mindful of when you're dealing with a brain injury because – um, there's loss involved, even if it's just temporary, yeah, there's loss yeah. and there's trauma and, uh, you got to deal with that. So I didn't understand how that connected with um, what I'm going through. Well, I hope you will find some, I hope you will find some, some support if you want it and if you need it. Because... And so do you have any therapists that you recommend? <laughs> Cause I like, I haven't even been able to find that. And I've been trying to find that. Have you missing the brain injury stuff in different ways? Ask your primary care physician if they know of any um, psychotherapists who deal with health issues. Okay. Because there are there are psychotherapists or um, have kind of different subspecialties typically, and some of them deal with childhood trauma. Yeah. Some of them deal with like substance abuse, and some of them deal with like eating disorders and. And some of them deal with like chronic health issues, but even a garden variety, uh, general psychotherapist can probably help you deal with a lot. You know what I mean? Um, and a lot of it I found, at least for me was just, um, whether you are ready, you're ready to talk about it because it's not like psychotherapy is just you sitting on the sofa talking to somebody. Yeah. But the thing is, they sometimes, like, ask you questions where it's like a trap door, you know? <laughs> you just kind well, of like, I didn't know that was that was, that's what that was about. Yeah. And it, 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 it's like, and you put it together, and it's this huge weight lifted off you. Nice. It's a huge weight. I hope you can find that if you want it. And if other people want it, I hope that, like, let, let's put all this sort of the shame and the taboo. It's like, that is so 1950s, you know, like, let's not. Let's just all be healthy. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, as we're saying this, I'm like, okay, I got to do that. 
But then I have all these internal barriers. And it's funny because I think about the last lap of trying to do this. Um, but then I think about what you were just saying about you you were just in that mode of finding the right thing for the things you need. Like, um, how do you get yeah. into that mental fierceness? You have to wait until you're ready for it. And then you have to and, do and, it. And you have to really go for it in a way. Yeah. yeah. And you have to decide. It's kind of like... Um, in, in some ways I wish I could have done it, um, in my twenties, but I didn't feel safe enough yet. You got to feel safe enough because it's, it's messy and it's ugly and it's sad and it's hard and it's painful to kind of feel all that stuff. Your brain has been telling you, you don't want to feel this. You don't want to feel this. This is hard. And and (laughs) you're not, right. Cause you're not in the place of the, all the times that you learned of what to assess about the store from the parking lot that you're able to do in 20 seconds came from many experiences where that you did the wrong thing and had a lot of, um, right. Yeah. And so that's the realm that I was able to defeat through my strategies. But now yeah. I, now I'm in the state where I'm trying to relive it for the first time. And it's so fucking hard and it's bringing up. It is. And now I'm crying and now, you know, like I feel it right now. Well, and, and I, I, in some ways, I, I hope I haven't provoked that. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I hope I have. <laughs> I have written it. You know I, have I, mean? it, I have it in my room like a shrine. Like all my. Initially, I just wanted to write a story about what had happened to me and the cognitive rebuild. And then I got into all the emotional stuff because I hadn't felt it yet. So now it's become this and talking to people. And it's like. Um, well, and the other thing that's, that's really great about it is that. Um, uh, going through that process and understanding it really helped me as a parent. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense. Big time. Because you, you're you not passing on your shame or your baggage to your kids, you know, and yeah, you're not, yeah. um, you're, you know, you're owning your shit, basically, <laughs> is what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah. My son, he's turning four is soon and it's been crazy um so much of what i realized about myself came from not wanting it to come out at them and getting angry or not yeah exactly yeah yeah so you know you're you'll (laughs) um you know you will decide at some point and everybody will decide at some point that um they're ready they're ready to challenge themselves in a new way to, you know, take care of something that needs to be taken care of. And, you know, and, and you make that decision that you're, you want to try to do that. It's, it's, it, and it's, uh, and that you're willing, you know, that you're safe enough to handle the fact that it, that, that it's going to bring up stuff that's unpleasant or sad. And, And, but you, you know that you can handle it. And that you, that you will work through it, and then you will feel better. Yeah, so your it's just, therapies really instilled that in you through, like, fire. You went through yeah. the battles to get to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, there was a lot of time there. If you had talked to me a year ago, I would have, you know, I was still kind of like, why am I still struggling so much? Yeah. They said it was going to be eight weeks, and it's been a year. And, you know, and I was really discouraged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
but I just kept telling my doctor, I'm, I'm just not improving. And, you know, she was saying like, oh, you know, we can try some pharmaceuticals. And, and I was just kind of like, I just feel like I'm, you know, I thought it was vestibular. Yeah. Because it, it seemed like such, like I was nauseated easily. You know, I was just so easily triggered. And you still have, and, yeah, but that's a brain injury centric series of sy- symptoms and events. And I still am, honestly, yeah. like, you know, if, if I'm cooking dinner, it's just too much, too many, too many, too many life, you know, too many. Right. And there are certain parts of my job, like I use events with like 60,000 people in convention centers, Okay. you know, pre-COVID, like I'm done with that. I'm not, I, that is not. That is not a goal I'm setting for myself. I'm pulling the curtain on that part of my life because it's too much work to get there and it's just not worth it. Well, the sequence of steps involved in doing that are going to take way more points. And you've you've set aside like other places to put your effort and energy. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, so that's how I kind of ended up looking at everything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So. Because then what's the better life overall? And also, you know, um, there's a question. Does the emotional work cost you points? Absolutely. And how how do you gain a feel of that? I guess you go through the same process. Hmm. It's the emotional version of doing the gaze stabilization exercises that make me nauseate for a while. And then you get over it and you feel better. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're not magically going to get better. You kind of describe this network of the right support, and it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing to then hear how that how helpful that is. And most of the people I met don't have either any support, or I had a few that led me to the rules that I used to develop what I needed. But it, it's um, or how do we how do we get those doctors to be more available? I think it's the other way around that we need to encourage people to self-advocate. Right. And I learned for, like, it never occurred to me with my respiratory stuff. For eight years, I was pretty much disabled, 50% of the month. Yeah. And it never occurred to me that there were programs in it, like, really, like, at the best respiratory hospital in the country, which happens to be in Denver, where I could go and get tested for a week, do a battery of tests for a week, and then get access to the best minds. Yeah. And, you know, my husband and I said, like, that's what money's for. <laughs> that's, it's not for the car. It's not to buy clothes. It's for that it's safety to get, yeah. Like, that's what our savings are for. Yeah. 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 And... So I, I just realized after that experience, and that was like in um, 2010, mm-hmm. um, I realized that you get the best help you can find and that you have to advocate for yourself and you have to go, you have to do the research. And, you, and if you can't do the research, 
but you want that, then you ask somebody to help you. You ask somebody else to do the research if you're in a place where that's overwhelming. But we need, each person has to, um, so, so I told you like, you know, that, that I'm an adoptive mom, right? That we adopted this daughter. Yeah. And I, I tell friends of mine who, um, are in the adoption process, you have to dream of what your pregnancy looks like because it's not going to be a normal pregnancy. Mm. So you have to decide what you need to get out of it. And, you know, it's the same thing with the recovery. Like you have to dream about what your recovery looks like. You have to decide what your goals are like for it. Like, where would you, where would you like to be? And, and, and how, how much can you get there? And if you can't get there, are you, are you prepared to deal with that disappointment? But you have to figure out like, what is my ideal recovery and who are the people that I can get to help me get there? Right. Right. And then doing that. And then I, I also spent most of my brain injury recovery in the state where there's no one. I was sure that no one could help me and there weren't nobody dealt with this. So it doesn't exist in the outside world almost. So I never looked, but I should have looked and I could have looked and I can see how many people there were that were out there, but I was stuck in that mindset. And partly I got to that mindset based on my experiences. So it's not an easy thing, but you were able to do it and you have um, a lot of experience doing that. Like, how would you recommend for people to do that process? Um, for them to, yeah, for them to, like, if, if they are worried about, if they feel like they need vision, you know, rehab, or that they are having problems with their vision, or they're having problems with migraines, or whatever, Google, like, who has the best treatment for migraines, you know? Or, <laughs> right. like, you, you've got to... Like I spent eight years going to different hospitals around Chicago trying to get help with my respiratory stuff. I spent a lot of time and a lot of energy, you know, and, and I, there were a lot of dead ends. So that, that's the same then as some brain injury recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And then at some point, somebody's going to tell you something that will put you in another area. Uh-huh. You know, you have to, you know, just keep going. Yeah. That. Anyway, yeah, it's um, that's um, amazing. And when are you gonna uh, quilt next? Well, I've gonna, I'm gonna see. Um, how this week goes. I have a lot of other deadlines um, this week, but I'm, right. I'm trying yeah. to, I just had a new idea that I was talking to uh, my fabric company that we designed for. That's going to be hard for me from a cognitive standpoint. I have to learn how to use software in a new way. Mm. And so that is like another challenge that's very similar like it's really hard 
and I have to get my taxes done. And that is very hard because I, we have a couple of businesses. So I have to get through some things that take a lot of points. Of course. Yeah. And I, then I have to like open up space. But my guess is that I will probably try again next week. That's great. Can I give you uh, the bullet points of my strategy? Because maybe it would help what you're about to go sure. try to do. And I arrived at this strategy through rebuilding my cognition. It was, um, I guess, for every single thing I had to do, I could visualize the steps to do it. Or even if I couldn't, the always the first step is usually difficult, as you described, to have that same pattern. And I, my invisible gauge was my limit. And I don't want to get past 80%. And especially in the beginning, when doing it even once or twice is so hard, that's all I would do. But I would then get to 60%. And work at it. So if you're you got a new software, just turning it on sometimes, just getting the beginning to start. I have this internal right. gauge of get to sixty percent and then back off or not back off, um, do something restorative. That was my exercise and mainly exercise when I was in school, but it was just get on the on the exercise bike for like twenty minutes or some yep. weightlifting and that cycle I just kept going and if you push the limit or if other things in life push your limit. Um, I just had to learn how to like let go of the gas, which is imaginary because your limit doesn't exist there. But I always had to just let go of that for the rest of my life at 68%. And then, yeah, just going through the steps of learning it. Yeah, I think it's very much like what, uh, like what we do in like spin class. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. You know, you want to be at, you want to be at 60 to 8 80% of, you know, your maximum speed most of the time. Right. And then occasionally you want to jump up in the higher realms for like, you know, 10, 15 seconds and then back down and then up, you know, and it's the same way that they, uh, you know, when you're climbing mountains and you get to different elevations, you go up for a little bit and then you come back down. And, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think, I, I think that that's a brilliant strategy and I will, uh, I will think about that as I'm trying to tackle my uh, software uh, challenges. And and as it's the software plus the wanting to quilt plus the other things and the stresses in life, I like the playing with it with spin because I was never playing with it. This was always like just really stressful. Um, so yeah, well, th you know, this discussion brings up the huge factor of how some people can get to the resources and how amazing it is. And then discussing the work is something that no one's really talking about. The I call it work, but it's the the process of it. And then so many people I meet, they don't even have any potential access or they go to the doctors. The last recording I just did was they go to the doctor. The doctor says, you have um, the guy's hallucinating and seeing the world in different ways. But the doctor's telling him you have vestibular migraines and he's getting into an argument with the doctor about how he's wrong. And this guy's just sort of in the beginning. So he doesn't have the the fight or the realization that he needs to just yeah. keep going. And I think he got so um, defeated by that interaction. So I totally understand yeah. that. And yet, you know, <clears throat> then you go to somebody else because you know in your heart that that's not right. You'd have a very good sense then of trusting your instincts. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. You know, it's all about how your brain and your, you know, our bodies through evolution 
um, have trained us to know in the first 30 seconds that whatever your immediate reaction is to something mm -hmm. is almost usually right. Right. And then when it's your brain injury, you're in that state constantly where you're... Yes. Because you're digging your way out of it is how I looked at it. And yep. then I'm trying to... <sighs> All right. Oh, thank you. Take care, Dan. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.